Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco is hosting a special event called A New Era of Discovery on November 14th. Archaeologists look at the past, so we study the past, we excavate sites, try to find the artifacts that tell us about what had happened and some of the history about humankind uh, in the past. Well, Astronomers do something very similar. We'll read documents and letters from the Civil War. There are approximately 15,000 Florida men who were conscripted into the Confederate Army and uh, and traveled uh, all over the the United States in uh, different capacities. And we'll discuss architect William Waterhouse and his work in Maitland and Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Call, who specializes in songs about Florida, will perform on November 14th as the Florida Historical Society presents A New Era of Discovery at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. The special event offers a first look at the new exhibit Eye on the Universe, the Hubble Space Telescope, and a special viewing of the Jackson Walker painting They Called It La Florida, depicting the landing of Ponce de Leon in 1513. Bruce Piatek is director of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. We're real excited about this upcoming event. It's going to be a a great activity. Uh, It's really sort of the beginning exhibit opening for the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Sciences as as part of the Florida Historical Society. So it's a new era in regards to the history of the institution itself, the museum. Uh, and broadening its involvement in the community, its partnership with a great institution like the Florida Historical Society with its long history in Florida and the resources that are available there. The other part of that whole concept of discovery is that, you know, Brevard County really is the home of, of our space center and our efforts to discover new things in outer space, new worlds, and, and to learn about uh, the universe that we live in. 
And as well, we've got the Jackson Walker painting of the, dis- the discovery of, of Florida by Ponce de Leon. And it's a beautiful painting, just uh, amazing detail and color. Uh, and it gives you a sense of what it would have been like to be on board that vessel and have come across the Atlantic Ocean uh, probably hungry, thirsty, and seasick, and then see land for the first time, a new land, you know, Florida. Uh, And for me, when I first saw the image, what was impressive about it is that you really did get a sense of what the excitement would be like, this idea of discovering something new. So here in Brevard County, and, and part of what we're doing with this new era is not only connecting with the Florida Historical Society, uh, also looking at bringing in this new great exhibit on the Hubble Space Telescope, which is discovering new and exciting things about our universe, and and the painting, which, you know, these things are really wonderful uh, bookends of sort of the beginning of European uh, involvement and discovery of Florida, and then our discovery as a human race of the outer universe and the things that... Uh, we have and don't know about that we're discovering uh, through the space program. Ponce de Leon is credited with giving our state its name in 1513. The Florida House in Washington, D.C. is loaning the Jackson Walker painting They Called It La Florida to the Brevard Museum for a limited showing. Launched into space in 1990, the Hubble Telescope continues to provide us with incredibly detailed images of outer space. The telescope was last serviced by a space shuttle mission in 2009. A team of designers from Delaware North and the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex are creating and installing the new exhibit, Eye on the Universe, the Hubble Space Telescope. Bruce Piatek. This is part of their community outreach effort to be involved in their local community, and and, uh, I love these folks who have come in. They're doing a wonderful job bringing in an exciting, new, beautiful exhibit for us. Uh, They're working hard to prep the space. Um, and you know they're going to have volunteers coming out and, and doing the painting and the other preparation of the exhibit space for us, and then completely doing the installation, bringing in uh, some wonderful models of the Hubble Space Telescope that will be suspended within the gallery, uh, also of the shuttle deploying the Hubble, uh, and then some outstanding graphics that I think will really wow the visitors to the museum in terms of the impression. And the nice thing is we have a a very enclosed, somewhat isolated gallery space that's going to be ideal for this in that uh, I really think you're going to just, when you turn the corner, I think visitors will be amazed by the visual impact that this whole exhibit will have, Uh, as well as an opportunity to learn more about the space program, learn more about Hubble, learn more about what we're discovering, Uh, And we'll be looking towards building some programming around this exhibit as well for people to come back and have some activities for kids and adults to do that are related to this whole sense of this era of new discovery and Hubble and space exploration. At the special event, A New Era of Discovery, there will be music, gourmet hors d'oeuvres, beer and wine, and the new exhibits covering 500 years of exploration from Ponce de Leon to the Hubble Telescope. Bruce Piatek points out that the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science also has much more for visitors to experience. You know, the museum has a a wonderful set of existing exhibits. Uh, We've got our bygone beast room, which has some great fossils and uh, the mastodon and the ground sloth. uh, And it's an opportunity to uh, look at the history of the state of Florida uh, and Coupled with that is our other primary exhibit, which is the Windover uh, site exhibit, which is a wonderful insight into a 
uh, a natural history kind of phenomenon of, hum- of preservation of human remains in a bog here in Brevard County from 7,000 years ago and really gave us an unprecedented glimpse into what life was like here in Florida that long ago before the pyramids were constructed. And it's hard sometimes to grapple with how long ago 7,000 years was. Uh, but what we've learned at the, the, with the Windover exhibit is that uh, you'll learn about how advanced this society was and that uh, you know, these weren't really um, uncivilized groups of human beings sort of wandering around our state. Uh, so, again, there's a lot more at the museum to see and visit. Uh, we have some areas for kids to get engaged in and have some fun and play with some different things, uh, opportunities to touch some of the fossils. Uh, so it's a it's a real exciting space. There's lots of opportunities there. So it's great if you can come out for the exhibit opening, but, you know, come and visit us all the time. Under the new ownership of the Florida Historical Society, the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science is now also the home of the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute. Director Bruce Piatek. Well, we'll begin a uh, lecture series in January dealing with archaeological and historic issues, both here in Brevard County and across the state. So those should be exciting. We'll be, we're partnering with the local uh, anthropological societies in the area uh, to get them involved with some of our programming. Uh, we have an upcoming publication coming out through the Institute uh, that will be uh, probably out uh, middle of next year. Uh, and then we're doing a little bit of field work right now on a site, Norman Beach, which was the site of a burial mound. It's on a piece of private property. The owner's been a great supporter of archaeology in our state. And um, the city and the state have both asked for the Archaeological Institute, in fact, myself, to go down and take a look at the site and do an initial assessment. So we're working on that as well and providing some services here within our local community to try to preserve archaeological resources and get more information out about the resources that are here in Brevard and other counties uh, in terms of the archaeology of our state. The Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science already has an extensive collection of archaeological artifacts on display. With the new exhibit focusing on space exploration, a new dimension will be added to the museum. Bruce Piatek says that archaeologists and astronomers have a lot in common. As I was thinking about the Archaeological Institute at the at the museum, uh, and also looking at the new Hubble uh, exhibit that we have, one of the things that struck me is that archaeologists look at the past. So we study the past, we excavate sites, try to find the artifacts that tell us about what had happened and some of the history about humankind uh, in the past. Well. Astronomers do something very similar. When you look at the images from the Hubble Space Telescope, you're actually looking at light that is millions, if not billions, of years old, and you're literally looking at very old light, things that have happened in the past that it's just taken a very long time for that that image to come to us. So as astronomers study the universe, they're looking back in time as well. So we have a, a real correlation in terms of the the ideas behind what archaeologists and astronomers are studying. We're both looking back in time to learn more about our world and our universe. The special event, A New Era of Discovery, will be held Friday, November 14th at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Coco. Ticket information is online at myfloridahistory.org. The new exhibit, Eye on the Universe, the Hubble Space Telescope, and a special showing of the Jackson Walker painting, They Called It La Florida, will open to the public on Saturday, November 15th. Guests that Saturday will receive a commemorative gift. Viking crawled the red land And 
the shuttle took to flight The universe can't hide no more So ride, Sally, ride Challenger, Columbia Apollo, we remember you all Sometimes when you climb so high You gotta take a fall Look at the stars in the night sky Think how far we flew All the hopes and dreams now come true Stand on the shores of Cape Canaveral Looking up to the blue Let's see what those rocket boys can do This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, search the FHS archive, watch original video, and much more. Click the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Florida was the third state to secede from the Union and was active in the Civil War in a variety of ways. Yeah, that's right. When many people think about uh, the southern states, they think about Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, and their role in the uh, American Civil War. Uh, but Florida did play a, a prominent role, and we, we've talked about this before in other segments, but uh, Florida primarily was important for the uh, supplies that they provided to the Confederacy. So there were a lot of beef that was raised here in Florida, 
and was sent to uh, armies fighting in uh, various campaigns. But Florida also produced a number of soldiers that uh, left the uh, the state's boundaries and fought with Lee, the Army of Northern Virginia, fought in the Western campaigns. Uh, in fact, uh, there were approximately 15,000 uh, Florida men who were conscripted into the Confederate Army and uh, and traveled uh, all over the uh, all over the United States in uh, different capacities. Now, of course, there were uh, certainly Union uh, sympathizers who who fought for uh, Union. Um, regiments who, who were from Florida, and there were some who ended up converting <laughs> to the other side uh, towards the end of the war. Uh, but what we're looking at here today, we have a series of documents, and um, here in the archive we have a group of travel documents that were uh, issued to one of these Florida soldiers, uh, a gentleman by the name of George Holt. And um, Holt was, was born in Wakulla County in 1845. Uh, he joined the uh, Confederate Army in, in 1863. Uh, he was at the tender age of, of 18 and uh, was assigned to the 2nd Florida Cavalry, Company D. Uh, but what's interesting about Holt is uh, his experience. So unlike a number of his uh, uh, fellow soldiers who would have uh, ended up seeing combat, would have been sent right into the, uh, to the front lines of, of the battlefield, uh, Holt was a, a skilled machinist. So he, had a, he was a skilled tradesman, um, which was very important for the South at that time because it didn't have a, a large manufacturing base. So what we're looking at here our travel documents that were issued to George Holt to travel back and forth from his native Florida up to Columbus, Georgia. And at the time, he was working as a machinist for the uh, Confederate uh, Naval Ironworks. So he would have been building boilers and um, you know, probably working on different types of munitions. But what's interesting about these documents is that uh, they're very specific. Uh, they give specific uh, dates when he's traveling, when he's intended to be back, where he's going. Uh, oftentimes it's written on the uh, letterhead of uh, the railroad that he was traveling on, um, and they were signed by a commanding officer. And the reason for that is that uh, the South and, and the North, but uh, in the South they were uh, afraid of Northern spies. They were afraid of people who would have been uh, traveling around the South trying to uh, figure out what was going on in these uh, ironworks and um, figure out what kind of technology the South was coming up with, especially in 1863, you know, the, the midpoint of the war. Um, so here we have uh, Mr. Holt traveling back and forth from Florida. And then eventually in 1865, we have his final uh, transfer notice, and he's coming back to Florida at the end of the war. Well, you mentioned Robert E. Lee, and here in the Florida Historical Society archive, you actually have a letter written by Robert E. Lee. Yeah, this is a, a kind of an interesting document. Um, it's a letter written after the war. So this is uh, when Robert E. Lee is actually uh, the president of uh, uh, Washington uh, College, which would later become Washington and Lee University in Virginia. And Lee, after the war, really became um, probably more popular than he was during the war. Uh, you know, he became a symbol of, of kind of the lost cause, you know, theory among a, among a number of Southerners. But he was also popular among Northerners. You know, a lot of people uh, and historians today kind of look at Lee uh, as, a, you know, the, certainly a, a brilliant tactician, um, even though he was, you know, of course, fighting for the Confederate cause. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of people note his character. Um, and the letter that we're looking at, it, there's kind of an interesting story attached to it. It's uh, written uh, by Lee. It's a thank you letter for a pair of boots that were given to him in 1870 by a gentleman by the name of uh, George Sasnet. Uh, who fought with a uh, Georgia regiment uh, with Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia. But we were just talking about the threat of spies. Uh, and when this gentleman, George Sasnet, was fighting 
uh, with this Georgia regiment, he was confused with a uh, northern spy. He was arrested and actually brought before General Lee, uh, and he explained the situation. Lee took pity on him, realized uh, the situation, and actually fed the soldier, uh, gave him some clothes, and then sent him back to his regiment. So here we are years later in 1870. uh, General Lee is visiting Savannah, Georgia, where Sassnet is now living, and he remembered that act of kindness, so he gave him a, a beautiful pair of leather boots, and here's a letter uh, written by Lee thanking him for his compassion. What's also interesting about this letter is that it's dated April of 1870, and, and not five months later, uh, Lee had died. So it's probably among some of the last letters that Lee would have written. Now, Fort Jefferson and the Dry Tortugas was occupied by the Union throughout the war, and you, you also have a letter written from there. Yeah, and like I said, there were a number of uh, Union soldiers and sailors who were in and around Florida during the war. And here we have an example of a letter written by a Union soldier. We don't know which regiment he was attached to, but he's writing to his uncle, and it's dated October 24th of 1864. What's fascinating about this letter is a line here uh, where he says, I arrived just in time to cast my vote for old Abe. So here he is voting for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, He says there was... Only 52 votes cast for McClellan in the regiment, and Lincoln has a good chance of winning, I presume. Uh, So, of course, he's uh, calling for Lincoln to win, and Lincoln did win in a landslide. Um, What's also interesting, at the end of the letter, it's fairly short, so he was writing it fast, but he talks about uh, steamers filled with Confederate uh, soldiers who had been captured, prisoners of war, who were sent uh, to Fort Jefferson. Now, you can just imagine what that would have been like for a Union soldier, but also for a Confederate soldier, uh, to leave New Orleans loaded on a steamer in 1864, not really know where you're going, and end up in the Dry Tortugas in this small fort on essentially the end of the edge of the universe. <laughs> Some fascinating documents. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. William Waterhouse was a prominent architect who lived and worked in Maitland, Florida. He also designed the Kingsley Plantation near Jacksonville. Waterhouse's own home is preserved as a museum. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. In order to preserve the the whole legacy of Central Florida's development from the 19th century through today, we need to have some of these buildings. People forget the history. And if you don't have the building there to key them into it, they will not remember and won't understand the past. That was Christine Madrid-French, Curator of History at the Maitland Art and History Museum. I spoke to her in the spring of 2014. We talked about the historic Waterhouse Residence Museum in Maitland. Although towns like Maitland were founded in the late 19th century, you would be hard-pressed to see evidence of that since so few structures exist from the founding errors of those communities. 
The Waterhouse family came to Maitland in the 1880s, and here, Miss Madrid French tells me about who they were. Uh, well, William and Sarah Waterhouse were uh, one of the primary founding families of Maitland here in uh, Central Florida. And William Waterhouse uh, came down from New York with his son Charles and opened a carpenter shop. He was definitely a town booster for Maitland, and he was, I think, one of the primary architects and builders of Maitland during that first period. So his, well, his wife was, um, she started the Historical Society in Maitland, and then his daughter, Stella, ended up being the head librarian at the Maitland Library for 30 years. Here, Miss Madrid French tells me about the extent of William Waterhouse's architectural reach. William Waterhouse actually designed houses in Maitland. He designed the Kingsley Plantation House, or what they call the Kingsley Plantation. And along with with other um, buildings, he worked on the Church of the Good Shepherd. He designed the pews there. And he also built his own house from the ground up by hand with his son. Here, she explains his style. I think you'd call it the most, the closest would be Carpenter Gothic. Uh, from the from the north, it's very much a vernacular style. It was all wood, of course, and it was uh, simple. But uh, some of the houses were actually quite large. Miss Madrid French tells us what had been done to return the house to its original features. The Waterhouse story is a is a good one in preservation. The Waterhouse family lived there for over a hundred years. It was five generations of the Waterhouse family. They sold the building to the city of Maitland in um, the 1980s, and then the city of Maitland gave that building to the Historical Society to renovate and reopen as a museum. The building had actually been added on to and was created to create two apartments for the family to live in, and that all that work had to be undone. And all of the interior plumbing was removed because they wouldn't have had plumbing in 1885, 1884 in that house and the kitchen. Everything in there is now representative of the 1884 period, and we are celebrating the 130th anniversary of the house this year. What struck me most about the Waterhouse Residence Museum is the way it speaks to a northern architecture, as opposed to a structure built for the heat and humidity of Florida. William Waterhouse brought with him the experience of home design and construction typical in New York and New England. I asked Miss Madrid French if Waterhouse was influenced by these northern styles of architecture. In architecture, they definitely represent that because you'll see later as Florida develops its own idea of architectural design that the buildings are much more open to the exterior. We take advantage of the, the breezes and the sunshine. When the northerners came down, they were basically building things that they knew up north. So it's the same type of building. But here in Florida, because it's wood, it's actually fairly rare to have a 19th century building that's over 100 years old in this climate. So, you know, that's you would start to see the beginning of people adding the screen porches where you could be outside. And then it, it's if they didn't go back north during the summer, they had to figure out how to live without air conditioning uh, in the summer in Florida. And so that would take some accommodation. So it, even at the Waterhouse, there's a screened-in middle porch between the house and the kitchen. And I think that, that would use that as a breezeway. That was Christine Madrid French, and I'm Robert Casanello with... Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. 
You can join us every day on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our post today in Florida history. Join us right here again next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.